it's like people always talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and diversity not being enough and everything having to come to the point where people feel included. And so that's a challenge because the, the space right now is very homogenous. And then you're trying to create solutions for the community. You can't create solutions without having the community present. And, and so trying to completely change the way that these policies have been written and by whom they've been written, I think is a huge challenge. Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. I wanted to take a quick moment to just say we made it one year. This podcast has been live for officially a whole year and we're just getting started, baby. Like this is just the beginning. Early Career Moves podcast is a whole vibe. It is a little community and space that is for BIPOC folks figuring out their career moves, their money moves, self-development, growth, and figuring out how to live in alignment with their values and their goals in a way that brings them joy and confidence. I know I just threw out so many words out there, but trust me, it all comes together. And this is the, the space that I've been working to cultivate I want you to be a part of. I want you to bring other people into this space um, because it's very much needed. So thank you for being a listener, a supporter, a sharer, whatever it is, however way you have been a part of this story in the last year. Thank you. And this is just the beginning. Thank you so much for being here. I would like to now transition over to introducing today's guest. We have Phoebe Romero on the show. Phoebe is a Latina who works in the environmental justice climate change space. And her story is really cool because, you know, I haven't met a lot of BIPOC folks in this space. It's usually a lot of white people, to be honest with you. So I love getting to hear her lens, her perspective of what it's been like to navigate this space, especially because there are a lot of implications when it comes to BIPOC folks, right? Like we think about environmental justice and she gets to be a voice in that room. We get to hear about how she uses that opportunity. We also hear about her educational journey, her career pit stops. She has been at the city of Austin as the environmental program coordinator for the Office of Sustainability, but she's also been on the private sector and public sector side of things within this space. So it's a really cool story. Can't wait to hear what you think. And yeah, talk to you later. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. Welcome, Phoebe Romero, to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak to you. 
Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really want to hear about your early career path. Why don't we start with you sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been in Austin for about 10 years, but I am from the border, Fronteriza. I I was actually born in northern Mexico, and I grew up in Matamoros, which is the, the town that's across the border from Brownsville, Texas, if anybody knows the Rio Grande Valley. And I moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old and grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. That's where I graduated from high school. And then I went to undergrad in the East Coast at Brown University. And that was the first time that I had left home. And it was a completely different experience being up there. And I learned and grew a lot. And once those four years were up, I was very much missing the heat and very much missing just being in, I guess, in in Texas and closer to family. And so I decided to move back to to Texas, but not necessarily back to my hometown. And so Austin seemed like a happy medium, um, a few hours away from family. It's really warm and temperate climate. And, and yeah, I've just been here since. Yeah. So you and I have a similar background. I'm also from Texas and I went to college on the East Coast. It was a pretty big decision to leave home, like to leave Texas to go to college so far away. Did you have a similar experience where like people were like, you're crazy. Why are you going so far away? Oh, absolutely. I think my mom is, she was the first generation college student. She got her engineering degree in Mexico and then went on to get her master's degree in Texas. And I think that she was very supportive in my whole adventure. She was just like, do what you have to do. Like, I wish I'd gotten to do this myself. And and so that was a really awesome part of it. I think once my grandparents were like, well, I don't get it. Like, why wouldn't you just stay here? Like, why wouldn't you be at home with us? Like, that sounds so hard. Why would you put yourself through that? And and so I think there was both, right? I was able to do it in a way that was, I was probably more supported than many people because my mom had that drive within herself and understood that first generation experience and really supported me. But it was difficult. As soon as I, my mom came with me, flew with me, helped me put my room together. And then as soon as she left, I just like started crying. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I feel really alone. I think that's where a lot of growth came in. And I will say it was a culture shock. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge culture shock. Were you able to meet other like Latinx or like Texas Latinos at Brown? Yes. So there were a lot of I think actually, a couple of the people that I met right away or that I learned that were at Brown were from middle school. So I've moved a couple of times around the Rio Grande Valley. And so there were two people I knew from my middle school. There was somebody from my high school that was a year older than me. And he had a network of people. And so I think that within the Brown community, there was a lot of support from whether you were from the South Texas community, or whether you were from California, or first generation or or Latino. And there was a lot of support on that end. And so I do feel like it was great to, to make connections to to folks that could share that experience. Yeah, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit to what you do today. So tell us what your job is at um, the city of Austin and what does it mean? Like, what is it that you do? Sure. So I work with the Office of Sustainability in the city of Austin, and it is a pretty small department. It's like 12 to 15 of us. And so 
each person on the team takes on a lot. We all wear many hats. And so I'm on the climate team within the Office of Sustainability, and I work on regional air quality issues, air quality planning. I work on the Austin Climate Equity Plan creation. That's probably taken up the most of my time, and it's my favorite thing that I've worked on. And so it's thinking about climate mitigation, which is like trying to reduce emissions. But we also have been thinking about climate resilience or climate adaptation, which is recognizing that climate change is already happening and has been having effects on communities for quite a while. And what are we going to do to uh, prepare for all those changes in extreme weather? Yeah. And so what was it like going through the Texas winter storm, like the Austin winter storm, I guess, back in February and thinking about climate change? Like, Was that something that was on your mind a lot? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I think when you have an event like that was, it's it led to a lot of cascading effects, right? You have power loss across different communities, and then eventually you had water loss, and then all of that led to food scarcity. At the same time, the roads were not, I live off of 183, which is a major highway. And so transportation for me was not feasible with the car that I had. So you feel like you can't go anywhere. I became much more aware of the fact that we don't have necessarily a a walking distance grocery store. And, And so you start thinking about all of those aspects, right? You've got the idea of grid resilience, like what is what does that mean? The idea to being able to provide power to people's homes and then the water system that is so reliant on that power and then everything else that comes with that. And so with the city, because we have a food policy team, they helped coordinate a lot of volunteer opportunities for us and to help with water and supply and food distribution. And so I, even though I don't work with the water utility, uh, somebody reached out and said, hey, the water utility is looking for people to make phone calls um, to people's homes who are having leak issues and, and other water issues. And so I helped out with that for for a few days. And so it was really all hands on deck within the city. And then you just saw so many community organizations come together who don't specialize in that, just also responding. So it was a lot. And it's still having a lot of effects as far as the way that we've been framing our conversations. So what's the most challenging part of your job, like personally, to as you're working on these issues? Well, the idea of power, I think, comes up a lot, or it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. As an office, we can make uh, policy recommendations based off of council-led action. And then there's this issue of accountability, right? Like we can say we are going to be net zero by this year. Then how can we think more um, strategically about how we make that happen? Whether it's by ensuring that budget dollars are, are being allocated for these things, ensuring that there's like the political attention. And then, and this is something that I'll say to, to every community member, the idea of that grassroots organizing and the political pressure to create these changes. And so that gets to be really hard is how do we take all of these ideas and put them into action? And that's still something because I've been in this job for two and a half years that I'm still learning about. Cool. So tell me where this passion and interest came for you for environmental policy and climate change. Like when did it all start for you? Yeah, I think to rewind back a little bit, in undergrad, I I thought about all these different things that I could do and 
at one point I wanted to be a doctor. At another point, I wanted to be an engineer like my mom. And then I was always into government and history and politics. And so eventually I said, I I really want to study political science. And I'm really fascinated because of my background in in international politics and and learning history. And so I decided to major in in political science. And then because I had enough classes, I, I double majored in Latin American studies. One thing that my mom kept asking me the whole time was like, so what are you going to do with that degree? Like, where are you going to go? And I was like, don't worry about it. Like, it's all going to work out. Just it's going to be fine. Um, And then once I started getting close to graduating, I realized like, okay, this is going to be very difficult uh, to actually figure out exactly what I want to do. I'm not sure. I interned with education organizations, with human rights organizations. And I was still thinking at that point that I wanted to go to law school maybe. And so because I really enjoyed the uh, summer I spent teaching, I decided to go into teaching. And that was a wonderful experience. But it was also one that made me realize I'm not sure that I can do this in the long term. And so then when I was thinking about like, what field I wanted to go into, part of it was just thinking strategically about the job market, because I did have a hard time trying to figure out like where I could go. I know a lot of folks who have gone into doing like coding boot camps because they know that's going to get them a job. And so they go to coding boot camps. I'd always been interested in sustainability and climate work, but I didn't really, you know, get to do that like as my studies or, or my job. And so I found a program that was at the intersection of project management and environmental management. And and that would take somebody that didn't have a heavy science degree. And then from there, you can do a lot. But it's not until recently, because I spent some time in the private sector, that I'm actually getting to think about my political passion and, and that degree and all of that history that I learned. And then putting that together with like all the science classes and the ecological background that that I had. And so it's a really good point to be at where I feel like all of my interests and experience are finally intersecting. But yeah, Yeah. not linear. That's a really good point. I feel the same way actually right now is like now I can look back at my 20s, my career decisions and see how it all leads me to where I am today. But when I was going through it, I was like, I don't know what to do next. Like I was just like stuck and not really sure if I was making the right move. So yeah, like when you graduated from Brown you joined Texas Teaching Fellows, which is an amazing program. I'm really sad that that it um, went away. Mm -hmm. I knew a couple of people who did that program. Did you do that program thinking like, I'm not really sure what to do next? Like this sounds like the right next step? Or were you really considering a career in education? I think at the time, I was open to both. Like I was lost. Like I wasn't sure. And I knew that I had enjoyed teaching. I did a summer breakthrough program with Breakthrough Collaborative in Austin, actually. And so I was like, okay, I already know that I really liked living in Austin for a summer. I already know that I enjoyed education and I think it's a worthy cause. And so I went into it thinking like, if I like this, maybe I'll get like a public policy degree that focuses on on education. And this is actually something I work with the Austin ISD Environmental Stewardship Advisory Committee. I'm part of it. And so I, I get to actually interface with the school district and what they're working on. And 
sustainability quite a bit. We had to talk about our journeys. And one of the things that I brought up was that like at the time, there was actually the installation of this like solar classroom and this community garden at my school. And I loved just seeing how the students got so excited thinking about climate and sustainability and our natural environment. And that was actually part of why I really was just like, maybe I can work in environment, like study science again, and then somehow tie that back to my passion for education. Yeah. So tell me about your time in France. That just sounds so amazing. Like, how did you end up going to France to get your master's and what did you study? Yeah. So at the time, St. Edward's University had this program on environmental management and sustainable development. And part of the program was that you spend a semester in France. And I had studied abroad in, in Buenos Aires in undergrad and it was so fun. I think when you think about sustainability climate action. Europe is a a leader when it comes to that. There are different reasons. And I think that the the cities were just built in a different way, right? The US is is very um, spread out. And so there's a lot that that we can learn about green building and and urban design, I think, in the way that takes on policy. And that's not necessarily being intersectional and thinking about all the other issues that that come with that. And so I lived in a small town um, called Angers. And it was very bikeable. I got a bike there. And so I used to bike to and from classes. I used to walk everywhere. You would go on Wednesdays. They had a farmer's market really close by. And so I would get my groceries often, or at least my produce from local markets. Meat is actually very expensive in France. And so I think from an environmental perspective and a health perspective, yeah, I was trying to eat a more plant-based diet. But at the time there, it was really because I was on a budget. And so I was eating a lot of like lentils and fresh vegetables. And so it was like a very healthy, chill lifestyle. It wasn't a party city in the way that like Buenos Aires is this huge city where you're just like so overwhelmed by everything that's going on. This was much more chill, learning about wine quite a bit in France. And yeah, I enjoyed my time. Their quality of life just seems, it just blows, I feel like US quality of life (laughs) out of the water, you know? Yeah, they prioritize vacation and time off and work-life balance. And so that's definitely something to think about when we think about the like hustle culture that the U.S. has. Yeah. Okay. So you talked a little bit about being in the private sector. How did that happen? Like, and where did you work for that period of time? Yeah. So I worked at a consulting firm that focused on energy efficiency. And that's one of the things that you can do when when you're working in the environmental world. Like you can go the nonprofit way and there's a lot of big green organizations and then you can do consulting and consulting can come in many different you know, ways. Some people do consulting to actually help organizations build a climate plan or build like a sustainability strategy. In my case, it was very focused on energy because that's the focus of the organization. And so I worked actually in our client was a utility in South Texas. And so I did a lot of traveling to pretty much everything south of San Antonio. Like I would go to Corpus Christi a lot, to the Rio Grande Valley a lot, and and to Laredo. And those were like the three hubs. And we helped 
large commercial organizations um, reduce their energy use by installing more efficient light bulbs or upgrading their air conditioning systems. And so I worked with commercial customers, so like the big box stores, malls. I also worked with cities, like some of the smaller cities that wanted to upgrade. And then my favorite was working with school districts. Uh, A lot of school districts that wanted to upgrade their facilities and reduce their energy use. And so, yeah, we helped process the incentives. And basically, it was a lot of data collection. I did site inspections. So driving over to these schools and taking pictures and a lot of relationship building with energy managers. So it was was fun. Yeah, a lot of what you're touching on is like this environmental justice piece. And it tends to be a lot of white folks in this space, like working in this space. And so what's interesting, though, is this disproportionately impacts black and brown people. Has that made it challenging to be in this space? The fact that there aren't a lot of black and brown folks working in this space? What has that impacted you? It's absolutely challenging. And I think I know we talked about like the most challenging part being power, right? So the inequities that we see in who gets exposed to climate hazards and who's impacted by bad air quality or water pollution, all of these things are an effect of a series of policies that made it that way. In Austin, there's the 1928 master plan that created redlining and displaced Black communities from different parts of town to the east side. Then, you know, that also through those policies, other communities of color were affected, including the the Latinx community. And then later on, after that plan, about 30 years later, there was an industrial zoning plan. And so those areas were then industrial zones where there was single family housing, they were building a power plant and and tank farm. And so then you have these very communities who were forced to move to those areas. And then they were like, and then this is where we're going to build all of our industrial facilities. And so this is commonplace across the country. This is exactly the history that we need to reckon with. So when we're thinking about Flint, Michigan, right? Like, why? Why is this the case? This was purposeful, right? There was explicit policies that made it this way. And so now when I'm working in policy, you can't just be neutral and say, oh, we're trying to reduce emissions for everyone in our community so that everyone can have a wonderful quality of life. Like we cannot be neutral like that. We have to explicitly say we are trying to reverse the you know, outcomes that these other policies before us came. And so we have to be anti-racist in framing those policies and we have to, you know, have not just not to say, oh, and consider equity, we have to try to center equity. And it, it is difficult, because that understanding the like, hey, we're in the climate world, and we're also trying to like achieve racial equity, trying to put those two things together, for people who maybe are academic or very technical, and have never had these conversations before, it, it's very challenging. And so in 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 putting, you know, together this climate plan, we had to have a lot of conversations and some trainings on history and and what does equity mean and what is our vision. And so it's very transformative. I've learned a lot along the way. It's like people always talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and diversity not being enough and everything having to come to the point where people feel included. And so that's a challenge because the, the space right now is very homogenous And then you're trying to create solutions for the community. You can't create solutions without having the community present. And and so trying to completely change the way that these policies have been written and by whom they've been written, I think is a huge challenge. 
So you have definitely had your share of different kinds of experiences in this environmental world. So being in the nonprofit and then being in government and then private sector, what made you decide to leave that consulting firm to work uh, for the government? Like, was were you thinking, I want to work within the system and thinking about local politics or what informed that decision for you? Yeah, it's a big one. I did take a a small pay cut to go into the public sector. So when I was at the consulting firm, I had a lot of opportunities to to grow in my career. I got two promotions during the time that I was there. I got professional certifications. And that was a really great part, you know, that you can get supported in that way. And I think that is an advantage of, of being in the private sector is that upward mobility when it comes to, to your career. I decided to go into the public sector because, again, I've always been interested in policy. I was actually fresh out of the New Leaders Council program that I know we, we both did that really focused on politics and policy and advocacy. And so I was really craving that policymaking type of role. I think something that I get to do now is that I, I work on buildings because that's my background and energy and helped and co-lead some of the strategy making for that part of the climate plan. But I'm also learning about like transportation and I'm learning about natural systems and I'm learning about um, consumerism and waste. And so I get to be much more of a generalist now and learn about a bunch of different things and learn about how, at least in local government, political decision making takes place and policy takes place. And so I think for me, it's just been a huge learning opportunity. And I will say that government is trickier when it comes like, I can't just become a senior environmental program coordinator, right? After two or three years, I'd have to move to another department or wait for if somebody left that was in a managerial role, try to put my hat in the ring for that. But it's just, it doesn't quite work that way. So it's something to think about. Yeah. So if you were talking to someone who was like, I want to break into environmental policy type work, what would be your biggest piece of advice? And how would you guide them in terms of like preparation or qualifications that are needed? Sure. So I think now sustainability and environmental science degrees are are very common in undergrad. At the time, I I didn't study um, environmental science. So I did feel like for me, getting that master's degree and having that credential helped. But I certainly don't think you have to necessarily have an environmental science degree because so much of this is focused on advocacy now. And that's what we need. We need like a a change in the way that we make decisions about climate or about extraction, all all of these things that affect this field. And so I would say if if you're interested in the subject and you want to be part of the technical aspects, like if you want to do actual like soils testing, or you want to help build buildings, be an engineer, be an architect, then yes, get your degree in that field. But if you're interested in being involved in like just advancing climate action, you can be part of an advocacy group, whether it's a nonprofit um, or grassroots organization locally, like you can do that, I think, whatever your background is, and, and you can be effective in it. And so I would just say wherever you are at, 
learn the history of your city and learn who and what organizations have influenced positive action, and then try to get involved with those organizations. Try to learn, I think, again, about redlining, because it's so rooted in what climate um, policy should be, is to recognize what that that history is and why we have urban heat island, why we have trees and more trees in some parts of, of town than others. There's that part. Cool. So my last question for you, when you think back on your career, is there like one career lesson that you would want to share with our audience? Or is there something that kind of like you wish you had known or like kept at the forefront of your mind when you were going through it all? Sure. I think don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. That is something that even when I have conversations now with young women of color that I've I've mentored, like I, the very first time that I try to ask for a promotion or I I think there was like a management job at my consulting firm. And I went up to the woman that was going to, you know, potentially be the manager for that. And I was like, Hey, like, I'd really like to apply for this job. I, I think I'd be great at it. Or I don't know what I said, but she told me right then and there, she was just like, you know what, for this position, I am looking for somebody with more experience, but I love that you came up to me and, and set that. And I want to support you in your career. And next time we have an opening, I'll think of you as you get more experience. And so that was super scary. And I think I didn't always negotiate my salary at the very beginning when I first got my role. And I regret that because that can lead to a lot of wage loss, I think, across time. And so advocate for yourself and have those hard conversations. And it's not easy, especially because many people of color, women of color, like have imposter syndrome that they're dealing with. And so you're just like, I am just lucky to be here. And it's like, no, like they're lucky to have you and you need to advocate for yourself. And it's going to be hard. But once you do it once, it gets easier across time. That's such a great piece of advice. I was guilty of the same. Like I definitely did not negotiate my first salary after teaching and later realized I was way behind my my peers uh, in terms of like our salaries and and that was part of the reason so big lesson for me mm-hmm. for sure well thanks Phoebe so much for being with us I'm really grateful to have you here and like I said I haven't had anyone on the show who's talked about a, a career path in this space so really appreciate your time yeah of course thank you so much for having me enjoyed this conversation Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you wanna do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.